Jesus is in the middle of speaking to a crowd of thousands about the importance of living with integrity when someone in the crowd interrupts him with an untimely and inappropriate or at least off-topic question. Jesus responds with one of the most searing parables about the dangers of material wealth. The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 12th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, so relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. That's the gospel of the Lord. It's kind of nice to be inside. Fifty-four of us this past week spent 141 straight hours outdoors in the Bounty Waters canoe area of northeastern Minnesota, including uh, Jade and Jolene, anybody else here who was on the trip. So the three of us uh, spent 141 straight hours outdoors, so six nights, parts of seven days. If you're not super acquainted with the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, it's 1.1 uh, million pristine acres in northern, northeastern Minnesota. And to the north, it's bounded by the Ontario Aquatico Provincial Park, which is about the same size, and to the west uh, by Voyagers National Park. So it's about uh, 3 million acres altogether of, of lit, uh, uh, untouched, uh, beautiful rivers and streams and portages that connect them all. And so once every three years, uh, we go there with our youth group. Uh, kind of the way it works is you pack all of your possessions for the week uh, in a bag like this. So you put your clothing in there, you put your toiletries in there, and then thanks to modern technology, you can take a big sleeping bag like this and put it in a compression sack like this, and you scooch that sleeping bag down to about this size. That fits in there, and then you take your ground pad, and this compresses down to uh, the size of a bag like that, and all that stuff can get jammed into that bag. It's called a dry bag, so that when it rains or that when you flip your canoe over, which none of us did over the course of the week, all of your stuff stays dry. And then in different bags, you carry uh, your food for the week and your tents and your first aid stuff and all that. And uh, you don't go out as a group of 54. You grow out in groups no larger than nine. So we sent six groups out. Each group had three canoes, six portage packs that carried all of your stuff. And so when you got to a portage, three people would carry a canoe, six people would carry one of the portage packs, and you'd go blazing across that little trail and gets to your next water body. Uh, you've done that, Baron, right? You've been on that trip. Anybody else here who's been on? Uh, uh, Steve's been up there. Kevin's been up there. Uh, and, and we had a safe and really good week outside. Uh, one of the mantras, though, that we always share with the kids is uh, only take it if you're willing to carry it for a week. Or another way of putting it is you travel best when you travel light. And for 141 hours, uh, 54 of us managed to travel really light. 
And it was a, a really cool experience. But now that we're back, a few creature comforts are kind of nice. Having a pillow that actually is comfy is kind of nice. Uh, being inside uh, is kind of nice. Travel light, travel best, though. There's a good little introduction to the story tell, Jesus tells us today's gospel lesson. And um, I think what's interesting about today's gospel lesson is this is another one of the stories in Luke's gospel that we only hear in Luke's gospel. And people tend to love these stories that are unique to this particular gospel. Who doesn't love the story of the prodigal son? Because at some point in life, we all wander away and make some huge mistake. And, and then to realize that we're still welcomed and invited back home and that God even celebrates when the lost are found. Who doesn't love a story like that? And, and a story like the Good Samaritan, to know that if somebody actually does something, a, a random act of great kindness that saves a life from the most unexpected person, who doesn't love to hear a story like that? But to have Jesus bristle at you, friend, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And then to tell a story directed right at you that ends with, you're a fool, and to realize that at some point in our life, most of us could be the target of that particular story, either because of our decisions or our possessions or our attitudes. None of us really want to hear that. And so this story has a tendency to get pushed aside and read once every three years and then perhaps forgotten about. But we are the lesser for it if we let ourselves do that. And so we should pay a little attention to this really important story of Jesus's. As always, it's good to know the context. So the immediate context before this is that Jesus is teaching these large crowds of people, and he's teaching them about the toughest stuff. He's teaching them about uh, honesty in your relationships and faithfulness and, and little things and integrity uh, and consistency as a person. In other words, the toughest things to teach, kind of the deepest things to teach, I mean, that's hard stuff. If, if you've ever tried to teach something that's kind of conceptual and, and hard to give examples for and you're hoping that people, uh, large numbers of very different people grasp it, uh, that's a hard thing to do. And so he's working on the hardest stuff. And then out of the blue, this guy interrupts and asks, asks a question that certainly is out of context and, and, and which has really nothing to do with the topic at hand. And he just says to Jesus, Jesus, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. Where did that come from? We were talking about other stuff. But you kind of can sense where it may have come from. Because chances are this guy has maybe heard a little bit more from Jesus. Or maybe Jesus had said more that's not recorded at this point. But, but Jesus certainly talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus in other places certainly talks about kind of the equality of how his people are to treat each other, uh, a, a community of, of equals, of, of friends. And, and so this guy probably has picked up on that. And this guy is aware uh, that in Jewish inheritance law, uh, everything was, was in the favor of the oldest son. So let's say he's the younger of two sons in a family. If that was the case, his older brother, when the, when the father died, the older brother would re receive seven-ninths of the inheritance. He, as the younger brother, would receive two-ninths of the inheritance. And yet Jesus had talked 
about how we should treat our neighbor as ourselves and how everything should be more equal. And so he probably thought, hey, I'm going to ask Jesus about this, and maybe Jesus will say, you are right, and we should change those inheritance laws so that you get 50% instead of two ninths. Jesus caused my brother to divide the inheritance 50-50 with me, as I think what's the real point behind his question. And maybe the Jewish inheritance laws should have been changed, but Jesus immediately perceives that that uh, sense of justice and fairness is not actually the essence of the man's question. The essence of the man's question is that he wants more and he wants it now. And so Jesus says to him, friend, interestingly in scripture, remember those couple times when Jesus says to his, his, his mother, he, he starts a sentence with woman. That sounds really rude, but it's actually a, a really, in the original language, it's a really polite way of addressing his mom. Here, when he says friend, that sounds really polite to us, but that particular word and the way it's said in the context is, is a sharp, almost rebuke. Friend, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Not my business, really, is Jesus saying, and why do you interrupt anyway? Be aware lest greed and possessions become more important, and then rather than belabor the point, Jesus just tells a story. And you heard the story about the rich farmer. You should look at your bulletins, first page, the opening thought. I mean, just look how well he tells the story. If you look at the opening thought, I didn't even count it, but how many times it's about self, I, uh, my, uh, me. I mean, like in two sentences, he jams, Jesus jams that word in there uh, about 12 or 15 times. Somebody can count and see what the actual answer is. But uh, the guy's all about himself. He has great success, decides to tear down his existing barn so he can store more stuff, and then he's going to eat, drink, and be merry in his retirement program. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, he's a fool. Your life is required of you, and you can't take it with you. After, after you die, whose possessions will all that stuff be? So now unpack it a little bit more. The guy is only about himself. He thinks he's accomplished it all by himself. I mean, we think that all the time in our world. I can do it better myself. It's mine. It's our possessions. People build up their portfolios of whatever it might be. But when you die, you can't take it with you. Jesus says of the farmer, you're a fool if you think it's actually yours. Interestingly, then, he builds all of this extra barn storage space because what's he going to do? Is he going to sell? The crops? Is he going to share it? Apparently not. He's keeping it all again for himself or maybe for his immediate circle. Who doesn't something, in a sense, anyone can keep? We only have two sacraments as a church, and one of them is a meal. In other words, food's meant to be shared. Uh, it's an oxymoron to say you could take communion by yourself, it's not possible. It's, it's, it's a meal that can be shared. Food is to be shared. To build bigger barns to keep it for yourself means you're what? You're a fool. And last of all, I'm going to quit what I'm doing. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, I'm going to check out of life. Um, he's a fool. Nobody gets to do that. 
whether you're eight or 80 or 90 or six, you don't get to check out. How can you love your neighbor as yourself at any point in life if you've already checked out? You're a fool if you think otherwise. I've thought all of those things in my life at some point, even if just for a fleeting moment. We, we all have, and we're fools when we think that way. Jesus is the loving good shepherd who holds us in his arms, but that doesn't mean he can't be blunt with us every once in a while. And so all of these things build up in the story, and it's really hard to hear it, but hear it we should, and live it in our lives we should. So then how does that fit the lives we live nowadays? I wrote the, the newsletter article in August about this, knowing that the story was coming up. So uh, read that. It's got a little more detail on a few of these things. But uh, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about the world we live in is that we're at a point where our actually well-developed human instincts now work against us in, in almost a tidal wave. Uh, and what I mean by that is for, for thousands of years, we as human beings have learned to keep stuff and preserve stuff and to hold on to stuff because the next flood or famine could be right around the corner and so you better have stuff. But in the last hundred years, our world for sure has created more stuff than, than all the people in the history of the world before us, probably some multiple actually of that. The world is now filled with stuff. And so now we're caught in the situation where we're all keeping stuff, an instinct we've learned for thousands of years, while a tidal wave of stuff washes over us. And we can acquire that stuff. Uh, we don't even have to walk out the door. We can charge it on our credit card and buy it off Amazon. And, and some uh, uh, Uber-type driver will deliver it to our door the day we ordered it sometimes. You never have to leave your house to acquire more stuff. And I realize this doesn't apply to everybody all the time, but I'm pretty sure it actually applies to all of us at least every once in a while. And so we have stuff. Uh, 60 years ago, how many, how many cars could fit in a garage? Like probably one, maybe two in the newest construction. Nowadays, how many cars fit in uh, a garage in new construction? At least two, right? And usually, especially in a suburban area, I think the expectation is three. What was the average square footage of a house that was built 60 years ago? I didn't look any of this up, but I'm, I'm thinking it was like 15, 1,800 square feet. Does that sound right? Or even lower. What's the average square footage of a house built nowadays? I mean, again, if we're thinking suburban world, it's 2,500, 3,500 square feet. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of California closets? I mean, specifically designed so you can jam more stuff into the small space. How many of you have ever heard, have ever noticed that there are like these storage facilities that pop up everywhere? I mean, we, we just don't know what to do with it. And, and it's generational. One generation passes it on to the next because they think it will be special and appreciated. So then that generation has two generations worth of stuff. And then when they go, the next generation has three generations worth of stuff. It's just, it's a title list. So what do we do in the face of the tidal wave? Um, the, the obvious thing is don't keep acquiring stuff. I mean, and, and honestly, as a person of faith, 
this is why this is a great August sermon instead of a December sermon. I mean, think, you can keep acquiring all the stuff you want during the year, but, but what we get most wrong as, as people of faith, I'm not talking about the secular world, but as people of faith, the best Christmas presents are relational and their experiences and they are serving together. They aren't wrapped in packages. You can exchange one or two, but any more than that is just a mistake. It, it is a denial of the essence of what Christmas is, which is to serve, to love, to relate, to experience things together. So you have five months at this point to plan for a different sort of Christmas, uh, literally a more faithful Christmas. Less stuff is a blessing. But what do you do with the stuff you already have? And again, this doesn't apply to everybody, but it applies to me. I think it applies to a lot of us. Um, but the stuff you already have, if there's a useful place to direct it, somebody just brought in some, some toothpaste and, and, and uh, uh, dental floss, things that we can, can send through channels uh, where it can be well used and shared, uh, medicines, uh, other things like that. You can look for channels to share significant stuff. But then there's just a lot of clothing and a lot of plates and a lot of stuff that are on our shelves. What do you do with that? And again, you know there are a lot of sources about this, and read the newsletter article, but one thing that will hurt you, but I'm going to say it anyway, is just throw it out. Honestly, just throw some of it out. And, and I, I suspect a lot of people would say two things. One would be, well, that's so wasteful. To have a house twice the size and to clean all that stuff, keep track of all that stuff, heat all of that stuff, cool all of that stuff? Isn't that actually more wasteful than to just throw it out? There's plenty of landfill space in the Midwest. <laughs> there is. I mean, if we lived on the coast and it was going in the ocean, I might think a little differently about it. But I mean, here it's just going underground, and we don't have any shortage of that. But you might also say to me, well, but somebody else could make use of it. So I'll tell you this story. About two years ago, Barb and I went to visit our oldest son, who was in the Peace Corps in Togo at the time, and that's the fourth poorest country in the world. And at one point, we took a little uh, journey to the Marche in a nearby town, the market, um, in a place called Chamba, and this huge open-air market where uh, locally, I mean, it's the only thing that could be sold there would be locally grown uh, crops and locally made clothing and things like that. But in the middle of that marché was, was a half block of European and American clothing and shoes just spread out on the ground. And people were buying that. It was all the stuff that we had you know, given away here thinking, well, somebody has need of it, but everybody in this country doesn't have need of it. So then it gets shipped to a place like Togo. And what's the impact there? People were still buying that stuff. And what was the ultimate impact on the economy? All of the, the, the people who made sandals are put out of business by that, or they have to lower their, their profit margin so far that they go even deeper into poverty, because they can't compete with Nike. And all the seamstresses and all of the, all of the, the tailors who make the clothes locally are put out of business or, or have to lower their profit margins, because they can't compete with all of the brands that create thousands of things in this country. In other words, in giving it away, we were thinking, well, maybe somebody has need of it. But the truth of the situation is 
There's too much stuff in it actually in a place like Togo literally does more harm than good. We'd be better off throwing it out. So throw it out. And that's really hard to hear. And, and maybe you can't agree with that right away. And, and that's okay. But I, I at least want you to think about the impact of this tidal wave of material possessions that we have created, not for bad reasons, but it's resulting in a really bad outcome. You travel best when you travel light. In the week to come, pray about that. Pray about every decision you make to keep, to share, to acquire, to gift. Pray about serving and experiencing and loving. Pray about taking care of pristine wildernesses like the Boundary Waters. If, if we forget they are there, they will for sure at some point disappear. And most of all, pray that together we would be very strong for each other and we would encourage each other. And that when someone on an anniversary or birthday gives you a, a two-page letter about what they appreciate about you, instead of a gift that you really didn't need anyway, you will hug them and thank them for the depth of the present they gave you. Because it will allow you and them to travel light which is to travel best.